Church, welcome to week four of our series called Guardrails. Uh, if you haven't been with us from the very beginning of this series, what we've been doing for the last several weeks is we've taken this very common object that all of us see as we drive or ride in a vehicle. We see that these things called guardrails. We've taken something that's very non-scriptural and non-spiritual and applied a, a spiritual principle or a concept to it. Now, if you've, if you've been with us from the beginning, we've, every week we've looked at the, the official uh, definition of a guardrail. Even if you don't remember anything else from this series, you will probably always remember the, the definition of a guardrail, not something that you, you would, I think, forget after you hear it a bunch of weeks in a row. But the official definition of a guardrail is this. It's a system. All right, so we've kind of, it's a plan. It's a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. Like that's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks, that, that that's what the, a guardrail is designed to do. And so what we did is we asked the question, okay, well, well why do we need guardrails? Well, we need guardrails because driving is dangerous. You know, thousands of pounds of metal, you know, hurling down an interstate at, you know, 60 plus miles an hour, a lot higher than that if you're in my car. All right, so like, so they're, they're dangerous. Lots of things can happen. And so we have these guardrails to protect us from dangerous situations. Well, we just said, hey, well, there are other parts of our lives other than driving that are dangerous also. And so what would it look like to employ a, a system or a plan of creating some boundaries in our lives that that we can adhere to to keep us out of the more dangerous areas of our life. And so we came up with our own definition of guardrails as it pertains to us in this series, and it's this. A guardrail is a personal standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. And we said that the reason that we need these in the, the culture and in the context in which we live is because our culture, by and large, will bait us to the edge of disaster right, with, with debt and with the way that we, we market sexuality to, to young people and adult people and the, the way that, that, that we're taught to interact with other people, all of these things that we're, we're baited to the edge of disaster by culture. And then that same culture that baits us to the edge of disaster, once we step over into the real dangers, they'll, they'll chastise us. That the same people that would say that it's, that it's wrong, or I'm sorry, the same people that would market to us and, 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 and try to market sexuality and debt and things like that to us would be the exact same people that would chastise us in, in culture for falling into the dangers that one of those areas present. I mean, we said that culture, right, there's, there's, there's some point in which culture agrees that there's a, a certain age that, 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 that a girl shouldn't get pregnant, that there's a certain... Uh, there are certain things that men shouldn't do as it pertains to, to internet and the things that they look at. There are, there are things in our culture that are despised and those are the very dangerous things. But what culture does will bait us right to the edge of those things and then chastise us when we step over. And so, so last week we talked about the dangers of uh, sexual intimacy and physicality and how we should have some guardrails in our lives to protect us from the dangers associated with sexuality or, or physical intimacy well so last week we talked about sex this week we're going to talk about money all right now here's the thing this is the last week in this series if you were with us in week one we said it was going to be six weeks all right we changed our minds right we we feel like god is leading us to teach about something different for the next couple of weeks and so we're going to cut this series short uh and we were kind of stuck with this okay well we had six weeks planned out we're going to cut two of them which ones do we want to keep 
And so it would have been a whole lot easier this week to come out here and talk about, you know, things that everybody loves to talk about. We could have talked about Jesus and how much he loves us, and we could have talked about prayer and how good it is and how he's to talk to God. And like, We could have talked about something that, that, n- that nobody cares if you talk about. Like, they, they, they enjoy hearing it, maybe, all right, depending on where you, like, whatever. Like, sometimes they enjoy hearing it. But nobody really wants to talk about money, and especially in church. And so we could have picked something a whole lot easier and just we could have all felt good and everything. But here's why we decided to go ahead and teach the, the money message in this series. Because last week we did. We addressed the issue of, of sex, and this week we're going to address the issue and the guardrail of money. And, and here's why. Because every time, not every time, I'll, I'll go with 90%. You know, all statistics are made up on the spot. So 90% um, of the time that I get a phone call as a pastor, say, hey, Pastor Brian, um, I don't really need to come and talk to you. Was it sex or money? Like, like which one of the two things? Like, it's, it's, it seems to be almost always the, one of those two things that somebody has to, to call and they want to come and sit in and, and talk about. Is, is it sex or, or money? Like, hey, Pastor Brian, my wife and I, man, we, we really need to come in and have a conversation. Okay, sex or money? Like, okay. I mean, just, that's, that's usually how it's going to be. Hey, Pastor Brian, man, my, my son, I, I really want my son to come in and talk to you. Okay, sex or money? It's sex because it's a kid. Like, that's always, you know, for the teenagers. Like, but they don't have any money, so it has to be the other one. And so, I mean, there's this, this constant battle in our lives with these two things. And here's why. Because they compete. They compete with God for the preeminent place in our lives. And because they compete with God, and God is the designer and the planner for our lives, when they compete for the position of God in our lives, we experience difficulty in those areas. And so we talked about one of them last week. We, wanted, we didn't want to end this series without having talked about the other this week. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you because you don't have one, we'll give you one. We have them here. We would love to, to be able to give you a Bible. Um, if you just left your Bible at home, the words are going to be on the screen, or you can track along with us on your smart device. There's some instructions there at the top of your outline about how to connect with us on Version Live. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 as we begin our conversation about money. Now, as it pertains to sex and money, here's what our culture does. Our culture tells us that the church, the, the, the church just wants your money, right? The, the church is just after your money, and they're against sex. And neither of those things is true. Not even close on either, all right? So, Jesus, in, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we have recorded for us something called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' most famous sermon in all of scripture recorded across these three chapters in the gospel of matthew the first book in the new testament we see jesus he's on a mountain so it's that's the sermon on the mount and he's teaching and the whole sermon gets recorded for us and in this most popular sermon jesus has a whole section about how we should think feel and act towards money and we're just going to look at it together so matthew chapter 6 verse 24 Here's what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. Now, in the United States, we're a, you know, we're a free country. We don't typically think of ourselves as being mastered. All right? we, we don't have a master. We're all you know, free as, as, as it pertains to our culture and that kind of stuff. So we don't under, really understand this master thing, but Jesus is going to elaborate. We'll, we'll talk about it together. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot, all right, so as in can and not, so can not, it's impossible, you cannot serve both God and 
money. See, here's what we have to realize. God's top competition for our hearts is not Satan. It's not, it's like, not, it's not the devil. I don't think any of us in the room are having this kind of battle, internal battle at home. Should I worship God or should I worship the devil? Like, I, don't, I, just, I just don't think anybody here is having that battle. And if you are, we can talk later. All right, like that's uh, me and you. That'll be the, the other 10%. Right, we'll go get behind closed doors. We'll talk about why you should not worship the devil. Like We'll have that conversation. I, I don't think anybody's having that conversation. God's top competition for, for the sp- number one spot in your life is not the devil. It's money. And because it's the chief competition and that's where God wants to be, we get this, this command from Jesus to not allow money to master our lives because God wants to be the master of our lives. And to, to which you, you may say, well, well, Pastor Brian, I don't really think money masters my life. Okay, well, let's think about it for a minute. Because I, I meet so many people that they're, they're what keeps them up at night, what they're overwhelmed by, what they, they, they can't seem to get past is, am I going to have enough money to pay the bills? Am I going to have enough money to get the next thing that I'm trying to, to purchase or buy or whatever. Here's what we've got to understand about money. As it pertains to, to guardrails and creating a plan in our lives to keep ourselves out of danger financially, there is a ditch on each side of the road as it pertains to money. Now, on one side, we have what I call the, the consumer ditch, okay? This is, the, this is the consumer, meaning that everything that comes into my life financially is translated and, and conformed into stuff. Like I get some money and I buy some stuff. Everything is consumed. I consume the money that comes in and turn it into stuff. All right, these are what we these are the spenders. All right, like I get money and I and I spend it. All right, now that's on one side of the, the road in, in the danger area. The, the ditch on the other side is what I like to call hoarders. All right, these are the people that just they, they, they take it in, take it in. What if there's going to be a day when something bad's going to happen? So I got to have, you know, I'm going to just save it. Everything I get in, I save. Everything I get in, I, uh, and, and what's interesting, this is funny. I find this, this remarkably true in almost every marriage that I have the, the knowledge or the ability to interact with. You have consumers and hoarders, and these two people will marry they marry. Opposites attract, right? You've heard that? Like, these two people will marry. If you're married, there's a really good chance you just identify like, yeah, I'm that one and they are the other. If you're, if you're a consumer, right, if you're the spender, right, your spouse probably just hit you in the elbow. Like, He's talking about you right now. And then they, they got all excited because they thought I was going to beat up on you. And then I, I turned and I said, yeah, there's a ditch on the other side and it's the hoarder. Of course, they don't, they don't call themselves hoarders, right, do you? What do you call it? You're not the, you're not, you're not the hoarder, you're the... The saver, that's right. They say, you know, I found one. They were somewhere in this area. Like, they're the saver, and they're like, well, you know, God saves, and so I'm just very God-like. No, no, no. the reason is that it's dangerous. All right, here's this funny marriage tidbit completely. Um, the later in life you wait to get married, the less opposite you'll be to the person that you marry. Just that's absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about today. I just thought that'd be, you might find that interesting. But sp- spenders and savers typically marry. And so inside of marriage, we often find conflict about money because one wants to spend and one wants to, to save. And the, the issue is that they're on both sides of the road, those can be problematic areas because, here's why, each of those is rooted in something, it's the big ugly G word, all right, called greed. 
It's greed. It's either you know, spending now, right, consuming now, spending now, or it's consuming later. It's, I'll hold on to it and I'll spend it on me, for me, about me later. So here's a definition of greed. It's not, this isn't from Webster. This is just something that I found. All right, so here's a, de- a definition of greed. Greed is the assumption that it is all for my consumption. Either consumption now as a spender or consumption later. But greed is the assumption that it is all for my consumption. The problem with both of these, okay, is that they both leave you living as if there is no God. That's the argument that Jesus is going to make, and we're going to unpack that. But before we get there, I want to see if I can just kind of build the case a little bit better. All of us at some point in our lives have have probably found ourselves awake at night wondering about, hey, where's the money going to come from? Haven't we? Like, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but because I, because I just, I feel like I know. And maybe, I'm guessing, maybe, you know, you're not, maybe that's not you. But I, I think it's probably most of us in the room that would say that, that, that at some point in our lives, we've found ourselves consumed, overwhelmed, stressed out, worried, wondering about where's the money going to come from. Whether, because I need to save it and I need to, to pack it away and I need to have it because one day something's going to come and, or whatever. Or because, hey, there's some stuff that I really want and I need to figure out how to get the money for the stuff that I... So again, there's a ditch on both sides of the road that leave all of us at some point in our lives, at one point or another, asking the question, where's the money going to come from? And Jesus' argument is that when our mentality, when how the money's going to come in, where the money's going to come from, am I going to get the promotion that's going to get me the, the next amount that I need? If, if I marry him, like how much are we going to be able to live off of? Like it's, when money becomes the determining factor for the decisions that we make, Jesus' argument is that money has become our master and not God. And anytime you have two masters, you cannot serve both. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or devote, be devoted to one. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, being devoted. Be devoted to one and despise the other. That's Jesus' argument. God doesn't want to be your financial backup plan. Because here's what we do. We, we'll live our lives based on how much wealth I have or how much I, I you know, do I have enough to get the next thing or do I have enough to, to put away for when the emergency comes or whatever. When we live our lives based on making financial decisions, when does God typically come into the equation? Think about this for a minute. It's when we have a problem, doesn't it? Like God is, is the backup plan. He's the, oh, no, I wasn't ready for this. God help. And the argument that Jesus is making, again, is that if God is the master of your life, he would have been helping all along. And so we need to figure out a way to put some guardrails in our lives, some, a financial plan in place to protect us from the dangers of ending up in a place where we have to go running to God. We shouldn't have to go running to God because we should have been there all along. That's the point that Jesus is making. Here's what God knows to be true. We've probably all heard this at one time or another, that where your heart is, there your treasure is also. You've probably heard that's in the Bible, right? Like where your heart is, there your treasure is also. Here's what God knows about you. God doesn't want your money, by the way. Let me just say this. God doesn't want your money. God wants to be the master and the center and the focus of your life. He doesn't want your money. The problem is your money's in the way 
of the place that he wants to be. So here's what God knows. If he can get your checkbook, he can have your heart. And that's what God is after. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. Now, I believe that there's a guardrail that each of us can put in place that will help us live in such a way that God is front, center, preeminent, and primary in our lives. It's a, it's a really, really simple philosophy. You've probably, you might have heard it if you've ever been to any kind of financial counseling or, or whatever at any point in your life. You've probably heard it. It's typically referred to as the, the 10 10 80 plan. But, but here's how it looks. It's a three-word, simple thing. Here it is. Ready? Give, save, live. All right? Give, save, live. Or we could call it give, hoard, and spend. See, you still get to be hoarders and spenders, but you can't, but things get out of whack and out of place and messed up when you have the two, the hoarding and the spending, without the third, it's the third that creates a spot for God in our lives where he is the focus, where he is front, center, and preeminent in our lives as it pertains to the decisions that we make financially. And so here's what I, I believe is, is the perfect kind of guardrail to say, God, I want you to be first in my life, is that the first part of everything that we get, we give it away. We, just, we, we give money Away. Giving says, God, I will not be ruled, I will not be mastered by my stuff. Either stuff now or stuff later. So the first portion of everything that I get in, God, it's yours. It's, it's, it's kind of this thing. It's like hoarding or spending is, God, it's mine. Like when you hold on to something, it's mine. It's a clenched fist. It's a hold on. Here's the thing about a clenched fist. Nothing gets out, but nothing gets in. And so the, the principle that, that we're talking about when we say give, save, live is that the first portion of money is, is given to God with an open hand. M- money goes out in the form of being given away, whether to, to God or some charity organization or, or whatever it is. But also it allows good things to come in. And so the first portion, we should have a portion. We'll talk about percentages here in a little bit. Uh, the first portion of what we receive, we should give it away. We've made that commitment as a church that, that 10% of everything that we receive in as a church, we're just going to give it away. We don't want to be a church that has a clenched fist. We want to be a church that's open. Hey, it, we, we got some, we've been blessed. We're gonna, blessed to be a blessing. All right? we're, gonna, we're receiving, so we're going to give something away. The same should be true of our lives individually. Second, we should save some money. This is a biblical concept. The Bible says that we should save in times of plenty for times of want, which means there's going to be some, some ebbs and flows of life. There are going to be times that we're kind of figuratively on top of the mountain financially, where times are good, we've got some extra money flowing in or whatever. The Bible says we should put away some of that money. We should save a portion of that because there's going to come a time when we are going to need it. And this makes the hoarders happy. They get excited about this. Let's put some money away for when the bad times come. So, so we should give a portion of it away to tell God, hey, I'm trusting you. All right, this is God. I believe that, that you can take care of things. And so I'll, I'll give it away. I'm not going to be ruled by my money. We save some money to put away for those times when difficult things do happen and difficult times come. And then we live on the rest. Money is a tool to be used. God's not against Stuff. This isn't a don't have stuff message. This is a, hey, give some away because that demonstrates to God that, that you trust him and that you're not ruled by your stuff, that he's the master, not your stuff. Save some money, plan for the future, have a plan. We're talking about guardrails. And then live on the rest. And that's a safe way to live. And if we, if we don't, 
Okay, here's, here's Jesus' argument. If we live a life ruled by our money, where money is our master, where all of our decisions are based on how much am I going to have left or how much do I need to get the next thing. If, if all of our decisions, if we're overwhelmed, consumed, just totally controlled by our money, then God is not in the correct position in our life, that we're living as if there is no God. This is how, he, he, we'll look at it again. Let's go back and read verse 24 again, and then we'll, and we'll continue down from there. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Now, come on. We know. We've, we've all been there, right? We've been in a place where how much money I had coming in or how much money I had going out was, was what was controlling the decisions that I made. You and I have both been mastered by money at some point or another in our lives. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted. That's the word. That's what God is after. He's after our devotion. It's not about our money. It's about our devotion. Be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. All right, let's skip down to verse 31, because here's the argument that, that I think a lot of you may be making in your mind. Yeah, it's really easy to say, don't be mastered by money when there's plenty of it, right? It, I, I don't want to say right, because I'm just, I'm guessing as to what might be going on in your head right now. I, I usually have an argument with myself as I preach from your perspective. That's just weird. We'll talk about it later. All right, so skip down. This is what Jesus says. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, so do not worry. If you're worried, don't. We've, we, we, we taught a message, it's been, gosh, it's been a while ago now, maybe a year ago now, that said worry and worship live in contrast to each other. Where worry exists, worship does not. Where worry exists is an incorrect perception of God and his role and your dependence in, in your life. That's what we're talking about today. All right, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Here's, again, I've said it once, I'm going to say it a lot during this service because this is kind of the main theme. God doesn't want your money. God wants your heart because he relates to us as our heavenly father. A father. And what fathers want for their children is for their children to know that they are loved, cared for, provided for, so that they don't have to worry God doesn't want your money. God wants you not to worry. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. This is what he says in verse 32. For the pagans, the pagans, here's who the pagans are. People who didn't believe that there was a God. For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. This is what Jesus is saying. That if your life is consumed by where am I going to get the next check? How are we going to pay the next bill? How am I going to accrue or amass enough wealth to be able to buy the next whatever? When your life is consumed by what can I get next or worried about what can I, will I be able to pay for what's Next, either one, a ditch on both sides of the road, whether it's how can I spend more or where am I going to get the money for the next, either one. Both of those are indicative of those who do not believe that there's a God. And this is a big deal because where your heart is, 
That's where your treasure will be. And if you are consumed by money, then you are not consumed by God. Jesus says, to worry about these things is to say to God, I don't really think you know what I need. Or is to say, God, I don't think you really care. Like maybe you know, but, but I don't think you care. And so we continue to worry because where worry exists, worship doesn't. That's Jesus' argument. We worry because it's as if we don't believe that God really knows or that he really cares. Now, this is a defining moment in the lives of those of us that call ourselves Christians or believers. There's a moment that happens where we step from, I don't really know if God knows, or I'm not really sure that if he does know that he cares, into a place that, God, I really do believe that you know what I need. And I believe that because you're my heavenly father, that you are going to provide everything that I need. I'm trusting you. So here's the question that that I want each of us to, to ask ourselves. It's this. What does my attitude about money reveal about my dependence on God? Because that's the point that Jesus is making, right? To say, I don't know where it's going to come from. I'm not sure we're going to make it. I don't think we can afford it. I'd really like to have, but I, but I don't have, like, to, to go with, uh, just, just to be overwhelmed and consumed with thoughts about our financial predicament or position is to say, God, I don't think you really care. Or I don't think you really know. What does your attitude as it pertains to money say about your dependence on your heavenly father? Because God doesn't want your money. God wants your dependence. God wants your heart. I mean, just think about what life would look like If you lived as if you knew that God knows and you knew that God cares and that God wants to provide, what would change for you? Would you still worry as much as you worry? If God really is who he says that he is and if he really does care and if he really does know and if he really does promise to provide for his Children, would you still worry? God doesn't want your money. God wants his children not to worry. Okay, so, so maybe you say, okay, well, yeah, Pastor Brown, like I, like I do, I want God to be first. Like I want God to be the center of my life. But I just, I don't know how. Like I'm so, I'm so overwhelmed by my financial position or my financial predicament or where the next bill is going to come from or how it's going to get paid. Like if... Okay, so how? Well, you don't have to listen to me. You can listen to Jesus because in the very next verse, he tells us how to live a life free from the the chains and the bondage of an overwhelming sense concerning money. This is what he says, verse 33. But 
instead of being worried about what I'll eat, what I'll drink, what I'll wear, but seek first, or you can underline that word, we're going to come back to that, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you, all these things, the, the, what we'll eat, what we'll drink, what we'll wear, all these things will be given to you as well. That's the promise from Jesus. Seek first, or so put God first, his plan, his kingdom, his purposes, his righteousness. Put God first, seek God first, and then he'll take care of all the rest. Like, he'll handle all of the rest when he is first. The issue comes in in what we put first in our lives. And it's not about giving. Listen, like give, save, live. This isn't, this isn't hey, you should give. Like that's, that's not the message. Here's what giving is evidence of. Giving is evidence of the order of things in your life. If everything that comes in, if your first thought is where can I spend it, what can I buy, or what can I pay, instead of what can I do with it, God, what would you have me do? If, if, if God is not first in the order of your life, then he won't be first in the order of your finances. And the reverse of that is, is, is absolutely true. If God is first in your finances, then there's a really good chance that he's probably first in your life. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and God will take care of the rest. What does your attitude about money say about your dependence on God? Now, Here's, here's the, the, the question, like, how? Okay, like I want to seek, I want to, God to be front and center. I want to seek him first. How do I do that? Well, we said that the first thing, the best way to do that is to give money away. And this, this is not a, hey, please give us your money. This is not us asking for your money. God doesn't want your money. God wants your heart. And we as a church, we want God to have your heart. And that's why, that's why I'm teaching what I'm teaching, because I want God to have your heart. This isn't about giving per se, but giving is how God sees the evidence of where he ranks in our life. And here's the thing about giving. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Now let me, confession moment. All right, a little bit about me, this up close and personal. In my family, I'm the spender, okay? I like stuff. I like nice stuff. I like cool stuff, which most of the time translates into very expensive stuff. And for a very, very long time in my life and in my marriage, this was a problem for me because I'm competitive. I like to win. I like to be the best. And in order to be the best, I, had to, I have to have the best. If you had something I, and I wanted something similar, I had to have something better than you. I couldn't get what you had. I had to have the, the better. And this translated into always just we... we by we, I mean I, because I fought my wife. Like, by, by we, we amassed an incredible amount of debt because I always had to have the newest and the nicest and the better and the upgrade and the better than yours and come look at me and, hey, here's what I got that you don't. Like, it was, it was very much that way for me in my life. Until I figured this out. I ain't perfect. No, this, is not, this is not be like me. Paul did say, man, model me as I model Christ. I'm not even telling you that because I still don't have all this figured out. But I've got a whole lot better grip on the reality that God is the one that's orchestrating everything that's going on in this world. And he loves me. 
He's my father. He's my dad. He's my heavenly father. And he cares for me. So the first step that my wife and I took in an effort to honor God, to put him first, is we began to give money away. We're, I, I'm not bragging, but we're, we're a generous family. We love to, to give stuff and give money and, and bless other people. And here's what it's done for me. As the, the spender, the got to have, need the next, better, bigger, upgrade stuff. For, for that person in our family, here's what it's done for me. Man, I've become content with what I have. Like, I don't need, I, don't, I just, it just changed. My heart changed. And I believe that if you get this right, your heart will change. Last year, check this out. I'm, you, I paid off my truck. This is the first time in my life I've owned my own vehicle and I don't have payments because I always had to have the next newer bigger and you know they, they make new ones every year Do y'all know that like, they make new cars every they don't stop and so I always had the, ne- the next one and the new one we've, had, we've owned new vehicle after new vehicle after new vehicle I finally paid one off and I love my truck still like to date now old Brian never would have happened like it's it's, oh, it's nine years old now, it's an 05, like it's a nine-year-old truck, and I love it. I bought some wheels for it this week, made it look good, because I still like some stuff. Like, but, I, but, I, but, I, but I saved up some money, and, and, I, and, I, and I bought something for my truck. But I'm content to drive an older truck. Our house is, is nothing that's going to impress anybody. And years ago, like when we, actually when we moved into the house, seven and a half, eight years ago now, we moved into the house. It was a stepping point. Like we were going to move into the house, fix it up, flip it so we can move into the house we really wanted. And then seven years later, we're, we're still there because I've just become content in what I have because God has provided and I just trust him to keep providing. And the same thing that I've begun to experience personally as your pastor, I want it for you as well. I don't want you to be a slave to money. I don't want you to be worried I don't want you to be content with where you are and trust God for where you need to go. That's what I want for you. And so there's a, there's a right way to approach giving. Typically, for the person that asks this question, well, how, how much should I give? Right, well, just, it, here's kind of the, the heart and the mentality behind that. Like, just what's the bill? What's the bottom line? How much do I owe? Like, where, just, just tell me how much I owe so I can give it. Right? No, no. That's not a heart that says, God, you are first, and I give it in response to who you are and what you've done. That's, that's begrudged money. That's, that's angry money. God doesn't want angry money, right? And as the church, we don't want to be the institution that's receiving begrudged money. We're, we're given this beautiful picture of, of a church in a city called Macedonia that, that gets this right. It's written in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. That's your homework. If you're looking for something to read tonight when you get home, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, we get this beautiful picture of a church in a city called Macedonia, and we're given them as a model to aspire to because of their generosity. We're told to model our generosity and our giving after the church in Macedonia. Here's what's weird about being told to model the generosity of the church in Macedonia, because in chapter 8, we're told that in the city of Macedonia, there was extreme poverty. They were broke, y'all. Broke. Like, the, the gas prices had shot through the roof, and the, the camels were oversized, just sucking up too much. Like, the, the housing market had tanked, and the 401ks were done, and the stock market had crashed. Like, it was bad. They were in extreme poverty. 
But their poverty didn't lead to depravity and malice and evil and wickedness. No, their, their, their poverty led to generosity. And their, their giving, the way that they gave was marked by, by three things. And you can write these down if you want to. They were three things. They were cheerful. Their giving was cheerful. It was regular. And it was sacrificial. And here's what those mean. Cheerful, not begrudged, not angry money. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. So if he gets your money without your heart, then he didn't get what he wanted. So, so if you're writing the check and you're angry, like just, just keep it. Like God doesn't want it. Now, once you become happy and cheerful and you, you love God, then we need your money. All right? So like, I'm just, that was just a joke. Come on, lighten up. I already told you. God wants your money, not your heart. If he can't get your heart and he just gets your money, then he didn't get what he wanted. So, so we don't want it either, okay? We, we want your heart. We want you to love God and give because you love God, not because you're angry at Pastor Brown for asking you for money, okay? That's not what we're after. All right, so cheerful giving. Second, regular. It should be a part of your lifestyle, just, just something that you do. Uh, that for, for my family, and I told you, like, I can only use us as an example because our financial picture is the only one that I'm aware of. All right? It's just something that we do. It's a part of what we are. It's a part of who we are as a family. Every single month we get money in. The first amount of that we take off the top as we're writing our budget, it goes it goes to this church, to this congregation. If I was at another church, it would go to that church or that congregation. This is where it comes because it belongs to God. Money doesn't rule our life. It's just stuff that we use. And so the first part of it, I'm okay with just giving it away. And so we do. All right? Second, or third, sacrificial. Here's what it means to be a sacrificial giver. And you'll find this again in Second Corinthians chapter 9. He talks about giving sacrificially. Here's what it means to be a sacrificial giver. You should feel it. Now, come on, we know what sacrifice means, right? Sacrifice should, it should, uh, it should hurt a little. It, you should feel it. You should have to change your lifestyle based on your generosity. Like you should have to live differently based on how generous you are. Because that's the kind of giving that says, God, you're first. God, you're preeminent. God, you are the focal point of my life. Now, come on. This is, you've got to hear me. I I hope that you hear me and you get my heart. This is not the church asking for your money. This isn't, hey, give to us because we we, we need to go build something. We're moving moving out of a building so we can give more money away as a church. Like, you've got to hear me. God doesn't want your money. The church doesn't want your money. I don't want your money. I don't work on commission. I'm salary. Like, I, you give more, I don't get paid anymore, okay? Like, I just want God to have your heart. And your heart can't serve two masters. I mean, just, can, would, you, would you daydream with me for a minute? Like, I, I know, I, I mean, I, I do. I take a salary from the church, and occasionally I just sit in my office, and I just dream. Like, I just daydream. I know that's not, that's not encouraging for you. All right, but, but like, sometimes I just sit, and, and here's what I dream about. What would it look like if we get this right? Can you imagine? Can you think about it? Like a church. We got about 350 people that show up here on the weekend. 350 people or so just so in love with God that, like, I just, I'm just trying to figure out another place to give it away because, God, I just, I just trust you. I just believe that, God, you can do anything you want to. And if I give it away, I believe that anything you give away, you never lose. Because God said, you, you put me first and all this stuff, I'll take care of it. 
So you can't, you can't put God first enough and not be taken care of. God, that's God's promise. Can you imagine a church where we get that right? The kind of impact that we can make in this city, in this community, for the people that are still far from God right now, if we just became that church that isn't known as the, the church that wants your money, but the church that is so generous, that's what I want our reputation to be. That's, what, that's who I want us to be. I mean, come on, in, in a city where we're, where we're laying off teachers, right? We're getting ready to go back to school. This is a hot topic right now. We don't have as many teachers this year as we did last year. And we didn't have as many last year as the year we did before that. Would you, can you imagine what it would be like to be the church that gave a school back a coach or a teacher or an administrator? Like, hey, there's not enough money in the government to pay for them. That's okay. We'll pay their salary. You just give them an office. I mean, come on, can you imagine what that would be like to be that kind of church known in this city, not for what we bring in, but for what we give away? That's what I want us to be known for. That's why, as a church, we committed that 10% of everything that we bring in, that's, the, that's not the ceiling, that's the floor. 10%, a bare minimum of 10% of everything that we collect as a church, we're going to give it away. Somebody, some organization, some, somebody that needs it, we're, gonna, we're just going to give it away. Because we don't want to be a church with that closed grip. We want to be a church that's generous. You know what? As, as our giving would increase, if we, became, if we all became sacrificial giving, you know, that number goes up. Not, it didn't have to, the, temp, the percent doesn't have to go up. It's not 10% per, percent that goes up, but just how much that 10% would represent. We, we, we told you guys a couple weeks ago that in the month of June, we collected, um, I think it was like $25,000 and $2,500 we gave away. Imagine if we'd collected $50,000. We give $5,000 to somebody, some school, some organization, some parish or something. Because we just believe that that's how we put God first. Not only as a church, but individually. So that's what we've committed to. And I hope that you will as well. And then just imagine with me. And imagine with me the difference we can make if we get this right. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. And we thank you, Father, that we have your word to guide and direct and to help and to coach us. So, Father, now as we reflect on this, as we think about it, each to our own life and how it pertains to us, God, I just pray that you would begin to move powerfully within our hearts and our minds. God, convict us where we need to be convicted. Lead us where we need to be led. God, help us to make the decisions to put you first. God, help us to give as as cheerful, regular, and sacrificial people. Because, God, we believe. God, we believe that with you first and preeminent in our lives, God, that there's nothing that, that you can't take care of. There's nothing that you can't fix or provide or protect us from. So God, would you help us to have the boldness, not only to hear this and be convicted in the moment, but God, to apply it to our lives. Would you help us to trust you in the area of our finances? God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for relating to us as our heavenly Father. And God, we know that that's possible only through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. So God, it's in his name I pray. Amen.